Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Hey guys, back from vacation. I was down in Dennisport for another week and something strange happened to me, not in Dennisport. Really enjoyed my time at Dennisport, but this happened on the beach in Rhode Island. I was walking on the beach or down there as a family, taking a little stroll to get away from the kids with the wife. And as we're walking down the beach, I hear a man talking to a woman and she's kind of hectoring him a little bit. And he says, I'm just trying to listen to a podcast. I'll get to it later type of deal. No big argument, anything like that. But as he turns up the volume, his headphones weren't in. He was listening to Boston Confidential. I got a big chuckle out of that. I didn't go up to him. I didn't want to interrupt his beach day, but I probably should have. That certainly put a smile on my face. And I'm just glad to be back at it with you guys. We got some great episodes coming up. And I just wanted to do some housekeeping stuff before we got to it. I've just read in the Boston Herald today that Sean Olette's killer, Rod Matthews, is up for parole again. The last time he was up for parole was 2016. And my heart just goes out to Sean Olette's mother, Jeannie, I think her name is. She's been a staunch advocate for victims' rights since this happened to her son. And she has to go to these parole hearings all the time. And she's getting a bit older now. And I don't think she should have to go through that. But I don't know if Rod Matthews will get out at this point, but he's going to get out at some time. And he's a total lunatic, guys. So be advised. All right, guys, I'm recording this on September 2nd. I just wanted to give my thoughts and prayers to the 13 Americans and the rest of the Afghan allies we've left behind. I think the worst is yet to come. There will be a hostage situation that will make the Iranian hostage situation in 1979-1980 look like child's play. So everybody at Boston Confidential, our prayers and our thoughts are with you and stay strong. All right, guys, just a couple other things. I wanted to recommend or re-recommend a podcast I'm listening to. If you're a true crime aficionado, and obviously you listen to Boston Confidential, so you are, Lisk, L-I-S-K, Long Island Serial Killer. It's probably one of the best podcasts I've listened to, and it's just a crazy story down there, and it melds this serial killing, and it's just a bloodbath. Now they kind of meld it with some political corruption involving a police chief, county clerks, administrators, whatever they call them down there. Check it out. It's on Apple. It's everywhere. Lisk, L-I-S-K. This isn't a commercial. I'm not getting paid for it. It's an excellent podcast. You're going to love it. The second podcast I've still been listening to is Greg Studley's podcast, Behind Bars, Cocktails and Wasted Nights. 
Greg is a friend of Boston Confidential, and he's originally from the Boston area, and he's old school. <laughs> and uh, he had me start at the Stormy Daniels episode and go forward. But I have gone forward. I think I've went all the way through them, and I highly recommend Greg's podcast to you. It's hilarious. If you need a break from this crazy true crime genre we're in, go see Greg. He'll set you straight. All right, guys, I've been putting this episode off. I knew I was going to have to do this episode if I was going to do Boston Confidential with any integrity. It's just one of those cases that haunt me, and it pulls me in and repulses me at the same time, and I bet it does the same with you. This case touches on the worst of humanity and its aftermath. And it's the case of Jeffrey Curley, who was abducted and murdered in 1997. This case, and I'm sure you remember it, is so hideous. This case almost brought back the death penalty to Massachusetts. The state of Massachusetts came within one vote of allowing the death penalty back because of these two homicidal pedophiles. That's how severe this was. And when I want to talk to you about the media attention on this, it was blanket wall to wall. I don't know, 12 months, 18 months, every day you'd see it, these two guys. And I just have to tell you the story. I don't know any other way. And I'm sorry if this pod seems a little disjointed. At times I have to get up and walk away from this stuff especially this case. I've got to put it to the side for a little bit because it's just so overwhelming. The facts of this case could put you in a mental institution if you'd kept reading them over and over. It's horrible. I don't know how people in law enforcement and the court system do it. Also, as we go through this, I'd like you to keep in mind that there's a certain segment of the population, a vocal minority, I guess it is now, but this idea is starting to catch on where there are no more prisons. What are you going to do with Sal Sakari and Charles Janes? What are you going to do with those two after what they've done? All right, guys, I'm going to vary a little bit from our format. I usually give you the background first, family background and all that. Right now, I'm going to jump into the crime. Then I'll come back to the Curly family and we'll go from there if that's all right with you. I have to give a warning at this point. As we go further into this podcast, there's going to be a ton of graphic information regarding violence, sexual violence against children, and homicide. So if you can't get through an episode like that, I certainly understand. But this is going to be a tough one. All right, guys. So it is Wednesday, October 1st, 1997. And I believe it was a regular school day for 10-year-old Jeffrey Curley, who resided in East Cambridge, Massachusetts. But I believe after school, he went to his grandmother's house, who also resided in East Cambridge as well. And Jeffrey's around the house doing his after-school stuff, I believe. I don't really remember if it was a school day, so I'm just kind of putting that out there. I think it was. It's around that time. It's definitely during the school year. Could they have a day off? I don't know. But regardless, Jeffrey's around the house with his grandmother at about 3.15. He leaves saying he's got something to do. And you know how kids are, and especially back then, you know, they'd come and go. You'd play baseball, you'd play basketball, you'd leave. You'd go two blocks over to see another friend. That's how it was. 
It's how it is somewhat today, but that's definitely how it was then. So just prior to this, two individuals, 21-year-old Sal Sakari and 24-year-old Charles Janes, had been trying to groom Jeffrey Curley. Naturally, Jeffrey didn't know anything about this. He's 10 years old. So before this day, Sal Sakari and his pedophile friend, they're both pedophiles, Charles Janes, had been trying to groom Jeffrey Curley for sex. And there's allegations that Sal Sakari wanted to kill this child as part of a sexual encounter. And they had agreed to do so, and today was going to be the day. And Sal Sakari also lives in East Cambridge, around the same area as the Curleys. The grandmother and the dad lives, you know, relatively close by. But Jeffrey Curley knew these two guys. They had been grooming him, like I said. They'd take him out to McDonald's. Charles Jeans had a big Fleetwood Cadillac, and he was kind of flashy. And East Cambridge is kind of a working class section of Cambridge. Everybody hears Cambridge and they think Harvard or Harvard Yard. East Cambridge is just kind of a working neighborhood and it's more in line probably, at least at that time, with the city of Somerville, which was much more working class than the city of Cambridge right nearby. So Sal Sakari was actually the conduit to Jeffrey Curley for Charles Janes. Sakari and Janes had been hanging around, and it comes out they both have this unyielding interest in having sex with children, so that actually welds them together. And these two goofballs worked at a car dealership, I believe, in Newton, Massachusetts, and that's how they met. So Sal Sakari somehow stumbles upon Jeffrey Curley. There was some allegations that he had known the father previously, but I don't think that had ever been ascertained. But Sakari noticed Jeffrey Curley, and I don't know what caught his eye. Jeffrey Curley looks like a Wheaties box, a kid on a Wheaties box, if you remember those. All-American, freckles. Everybody remembers the baseball card photo of Jeffrey. He's just an all-American kid into sports, not into girls yet. He's just a kid, and he's living his best life with his family and somehow stumbles across the path of Sal Sakari. And Sakari and Janes had been conspiring together to have sex with a kid, and it's offered that Sal Sakari wanted to kill a kid. And it's just, I'm sorry, guys, this is difficult for me. I got to spit it out, though. So as I said, Janes and Sakari had engaged in this grooming type activity. It's a word we use now, but it really didn't exist in 1997. And by grooming, I mean treating him kind of as an adult. Hey, Jeffrey, you want to go in the Cadillac? We'll go to McDonald's. And Charles Janes says, hey, you need a new bike. I'm going to buy you a new bike and I'm going to give you 50 bucks. So he's like one of the crew. He's like being treated like an adult. These guys like them. They seem harmless. They're from the neighborhood. What could possibly go wrong, right? That's what this 10-year-old kid is thinking. So on October 1st, Sakari sees Jeffrey Curley around his grandmother's house. and says, hey, do you want to go for a ride and pick up that bicycle? Charles James is coming down. We're going to do that right now. 
So just after 3.15, man, Jeffrey Curley says to his grandmother, he's got something to do, but he'll be back later. And that was the last time anybody had seen Jeffrey alive, except for Sakari and Jane's. He hops into the back seat of Jane's Cadillac. Jane's had just arrived between 3.15 and 3.30. At that point, Charles Jane's drives to a local gas station. The trio arrive in Newton, Massachusetts and patronize a mobile gas station, or at least Charles Jane's does. He gets out of the vehicle and surreptitiously soaks a rag or some sort of towel with gasoline because he plans on using that pretty quickly. Now keep in mind, Charles Jane's and Sakari knew this area pretty well. These doofuses worked at a Honda dealership in Newton, right there at the bend. I believe the name of the business was Honda Village, and I believe it's on Needham Street, if memory serves. Don't hold me to that. But that's how they knew this area. And they were in Newton, Massachusetts now, at the mobile gas station. And what comes next is just dastardly. After Janes comes out of the mobile, gets back into the front seat of the car, and I think he drives away, but they go to an NHD hardware store in the parking lot. At approximately 4.45 p.m. on that day, both Sakari and Janes were seen, and they were visible in the front seat of a Fleetwood Cadillac. So police ascertained in between the mobile gas station and parking at the hardware store, that's when this homicide took place. According to Sal Sakari, who ended up confessing in this case, at a certain point, Charles Janes gets in the back and tries to seduce this kid into oral sex. Man, it's just so difficult. And <clears throat> naturally, the kid resists, and now he begins to fight. Janes grabs the rag soaked with gasoline and puts the gasoline-soaked rag over his face and kills him. During Jeffrey's struggle, Sal Sakari says... That Jane said, don't fight it, kid. Don't fight it. Imagine that. So Charles Janes ends up having sex with Jeffrey Curley's dead body. And I believe it was for the first time in the parking area of that hardware store. Sakari maintains that he never had sex with Jeffrey Curley's corpse. I can't believe I'm saying these things, guys. He maintains that he never had sex with this kid's corpse, but his DNA was all over the back seat. Semen DNA in the back seat, Sal Sakari. You're a shitbird liar, and God has seen what you've done. Later in the afternoon, on the 1st, October 1st, the duo drive to a Home Depot in Somerville where they purchase concrete. Then they drive to a Bradley's store. This is how far this goes back. There was still Bradley's. They went to a Bradley's in Watertown where they purchased a 50-gallon plastic container. They also purchased lime and concrete, which was going to go with Jeffrey into the Repamade container. And then shortly after that, they head up to Jane's apartment in Manchester, New Hampshire. So once Janes and Sakari have Jeffrey's body at the house or the apartment in Manchester, New Hampshire, Charles Janes sexually 
defiles this boy yet again. Back home in Cambridge, the family and friends have went to the police. They're in an absolute panic. Being missing is something Jeffrey would never do. They know something's wrong. The police get involved immediately, and it's just total panic. And these two are up in New Hampshire sexually abusing a corpse. My God. At about 2.30 a.m. on the morning of October 2nd, both Sakari and Janes get back in the vehicle, and they head towards New Hampshire's seacoast on Route 101 and eventually dump the body in a body of water. And one of the problems in recovery was these two shitheads just didn't even care where they dumped him, so they couldn't pinpoint it. So at about 5 a.m. on October 2nd, these two glorious young men threw the container containing Jeffrey Curley into the Great Works River in South Berwick, Maine. They proceeded without apparent guilt or remorse to buy coffee and pastry for breakfast. That last part, guys, is directly from the court record. They dumped the body. They went and grabbed coffee and pastry afterwards. Now, there are varying reports as to how the police got onto these two geniuses. From what I can gather, Sal Sakari lived in that neighborhood in East Cambridge, and he actually appears to me from my research that he approached the police. He actually approached a Sergeant Lester Sullivan of the Cambridge Police Department, and Sergeant Sullivan was conducting interviews at the Curley residence, and Sakari comes over and interjects himself basically into this investigation. So Sal Sakari tells Detective Sullivan that he had seen Jeffrey Curley the morning of October 1st, and he had seen Jeffrey Curley around 3 or 3.30, and he was walking a dog. I don't know if Jeffrey was walking the dog or Sakari was walking the dog. Either way, this is pretty odd behavior. I don't know if they would have gotten on to Sakari that quickly. You know, here's an adult, right? And he's got a relationship, at, like as a friend relationship, with a 10-year-old kid. I think the cops would have ended up getting to Sakari, and they would have got two Janes through Sakari as well. It just would have been a matter of time. But Sakari's so stupid, he goes up to the cops and starts talking to them in an attempt to deflect suspicion, I guess. Furthermore, Sakari tells Sergeant Sullivan that he had seen Jeffrey Curley in Charles Jane's car. So again, more effort to deflect suspicion from himself. Or was it that this guy had some underlying guilt and actually wanted to get caught? I've seen this before in some mafia cases. They go crazy cowboy wanting to get caught. It's inexplicable, really, but I just think Sal Sakari was stupid. And thank God he was. So what happens next is Sergeant Sullivan related these conversations that he had with Sal Sakari to another sergeant, Sergeant Patrick Nagel of the Cambridge Police. Nagel was at the Curley residence again doing police work, and Sal Sakari, believe it or not, is out on the street passing out missing persons flyers for Jeffrey Curley. Imagine that. And basically, Sakari 
repeated the story that he had told Sullivan to Detective Nagel, the Cambridge police. So as this case progressed, the police kind of conference among themselves, and they determined Sal Sakari was the last person to see Jeffrey Curley alive. And it's absolutely inexplicable. His story changed a little bit, and this whole thing just seemed odd to them. So the police kind of focused a little bit on Sal Sakari. So Detective Nagel goes back to Sal Sakari's house and wants to talk to him. He has him page Charles Jane's. And James doesn't respond right away. And now they ask Sal Sakari to come down to the police station. And Sal Sakari is at this point wanting to help. He just wants to find Jeffrey. And it's just kind of a hodgepodge of lunacy. But I think the police must have felt really good that they had this guy in the box right in front of them, not able to hurt anybody else. And they had to feel they were on the right track. In an investigation, when you start getting some momentum, it's a good feeling. And I think the detectives had it at this point. They were doing an excellent job. So the police are hot on the trail. This is one day after the murder of Jeffrey Curley. And during the evening, morning hours from October 2nd to October 3rd, 1997, from about 9.30 to 12.30, The police, with the assistance of an FBI agent who does polygraphs, set up a polygraph for Sal Sakari. And sit down, guys. I know this is going to be shocking to you. Get seated or take a deep breath. Sal Sakari failed his polygraph test miserably. But the cops didn't really tell him that because a lot of this information that ended up hanging Sal Sakari and Charles Jane's came after, they call it the post-test interview, and a ton of information. Sal Sakari just basically gives up Charles Janes. He goes as far as to say that Charles Janes is a pedophile who has an interest in young boys, and on the previous day at work, that Janes had disappeared frequently, and for 30 minutes, 40 minutes at a time, Sakari had followed him upstairs at a certain point and said that Janes had been angry because the victim had tried to scam Janes for $50 that Sakari said that Janes was going to offer the victim for sexual favors. So he was trying to put it on Charles Janes saying, okay, I was going to give Jeffrey 50 bucks for some sexual activity and it just went haywire. So he was trying to deflect it from himself onto Janes. So at this point, the polygraph examiner was still in the room with some other detectives, and at that point, they became alarmed that Jeffrey Curley could still be alive on the second floor of this car dealership. I think it's the Honda Village or whatever it was that these two dopes worked at. So they sent out cops to see if they could find the kid, and you know what a miracle that would have been. That was certainly not to be, but the detectives really hit the gold mine, the jackpot, if you will, after this interview. They get Sakari to confess. He goes through all this dramatic stuff. Get my room ready. I fucked up. Basically, and the cops are asking him, what should I lock you up for? And he's like, lock me up, lock me up. Eventually, he tells a story, the one that I just relayed to you. And it's just horrific. 
So the cops basically let Sakari just hang himself. And he's getting all worked up saying, lock me up, get my room ready, I'm guilty. And I'd ask him over and over, what are you guilty of? What happened here? And he begins to stop cooperating a little bit. The cops say to him, okay, Sal, you want to tell us about the Rubbermaid bin and all that other stuff you bought at Home Depot? And that's where he gives it up. He gives everything up after that. It was a masterful piece of police work, I think. They would have arrested him anyway, but they got a confession. So that's a slam dunk right there. So Sal Sakari had his last day of freedom on that day, and so did Charles Janes. And the cops must have loved putting the handcuffs on these two. But something I came across during my research is actually in a, I think it's a motion to suppress. And I'm just going to read it to you. During the evening of October 1st, Sakari spoke to his former girlfriend on the telephone several times. He told her that he had hurt somebody really bad and needed to get something done that night or he might be in trouble. When it became clear to her that Sakari had killed someone, she got upset and asked whether he had any remorse for what he had done, to which he responded, I could give two fucks. It's like a bowl of cereal to me. I could either eat it or walk away. Imagine that he's speaking about the remorse he doesn't have for sodomizing a 10-year-old boy. Can you imagine that? So Sal Sakari tried to continue to limit his involvement or make it seem like it was limited. It was not. Sal Sakari's semen was found in the back of that car where Jeffrey Curley had been sitting. Charles Jane's DNA was found on the kitchen floor of the apartment and also recovered from one of these two goofballs was Jeffrey Curley's shirt. There was so much physical evidence. I, I'm not even going to get into it. These two guys, I just can't believe it. I, I think the assault and murder was the end game all along. Getting away seems to be low on the list of priorities here. It's just the strangest case. But I just don't think these types of people can control themselves. And they're just nasty. Charles Jeans and Sal Sakari are friends. They did this crime together. Sal Sakari goes to the police and starts yapping within hours, not within days, within hours, and gives his friend up. And while he's in a polygraph session with the FBI, another cop goes through his car and finds the receipt for the lime. And that's what broke this all open, guys, was the cop said, okay, Sal, do you want to tell us about the lime you bought at Home Depot? And he just breaks because he knows now they have everything. So, again, he still tried to minimize his involvement in this, but it's just sick all the way around. All right, guys, I want to reach out to the Boston Confidential audience. Is there a word or phrase for something that is so poorly planned? I can think of a few words, but is there a criminal justice moniker we can put on these crappy plans? They're all over the place. You know, I can cite several of them. This case, chief among them. Just locally, think of the South Boston condo murders committed by, I'm not even going to attempt his first name. Kid's last name was Texterra. And he killed two doctors in their own condo, stabbed them to death. Bloody mess. It was just another crappy plan, you know? It's just strange. I'm wondering if anybody in our audience who's smarter than me 
and that's all of you, knows like, is there some concept that I'm missing here among criminals? Am I missing? I have a degree in sociology, criminology, but I must have missed something. What is the word for these crappy plans? Man, somebody put me in touch with somebody who can help me on this one, all right? All right, guys, we're going to start to wrap up part one of this case. Definitely need a part two on this at a minimum. We focused on Sal Sakari, and a lot of the information from this pod comes from a site called Find Law, and the case is entitled Commonwealth versus Sakari. Find Law is an excellent site, especially when there's appeals, because they list a lot of the case facts information that is not in the newspapers, not in magazines, and not in other media. So find law, Commonwealth versus Sakari, if you want to look this one up. Guys, I apologize if this specific pod's a little choppy. I had to do it in pieces. I have to get up and walk around. I got to shake this one off. It stays with me, man. Next week, we'll get into Charles Janes, and boy, what a gem he is. If you're against the death penalty, you might not want to listen to these two podcasts because by the time we're done, you're going to be full force pro-death penalty. All right, guys, we'll see you on the flip side.